Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest. All right, over to Elise. My guest today is healer, best-selling author, and trauma therapist, Resma Menachem. In his book, My Grandmother's Hands, Resma explores the long lineage of trauma in the human body, from the brutality of the Middle Ages to the quote-unquote settling of America to the era of modern enslavement. He argues that while we want to reason and think our way out of these constructs, they live on in each of our bodies, somatically held and then passed on through each generation, only to be re-triggered. He calls this trauma retention. According to Resma, healing will not be a mental exercise. It will require feeling our way through and metabolizing our pain. Today, we talk about why he thinks it may take nine generations to heal the racial trauma in our country, but also why we need to start this work now. He explains the difference between dirty pain and clean pain, and he gives me an example of the kind of somatic healing exercises he does with clients, which I felt deeply in my body, and I think you will too. I've been eager to chat with Rasma, and I'm excited to share his work with you today. One of the things that happens is that Trauma decontextualized in a person can look like personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family can look like family traits. A trauma decontextualized in a people can look like culture. So when there's a significant amount of trauma like that and people get organized around the trauma, each successful generation and year decontextualizes it for the next generation. Okay, let's get to my chat with Resma Menachem. Your book's amazing. I'm sure you know that. And 
I have read a lot of the people, you know, Peter Levine and sort of gone as deep as I can and in trauma work and somatic work. But I thought your book did such a beautiful job of bringing it all together Mm. and the historical, the history and sort of some of the other epigenetic factors. In fact, I loved the footnotes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Spent a lot of time in the footnotes. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> st- well, well. You know, <laughs> you know. It's funny. I, I, I'm doing something. I'm actually creating something for people just like you because I, I do that too. I, I like when, when, when I read a book in the footnotes, I go into it, right? So I'm yeah. actually, I'm actually in the process, and it's going to be released, I believe, next week. I created an, an app that in which. It has all of the footnotes in the app, and then it takes you to the videos that are associated with that or the actual articles or the actual thing. So you can do that just by hitting that thing, and it'll take you all the way through the book. Oh, amazing. Well, that'll be perfect timing for this episode. Yeah. So, And obviously, the book is full of really powerful and sort of surprisingly powerful, I would say, exercises, which you are very clear are not to be skipped which I think is essentially, you seem to be making the call or many calls in the book, but that we want to believe that what's happening in America is somehow some a mental exercise that we can think our ways mm-hmm. out of and that it's not. It's a somatic mm-hmm. experience that we've yeah. passed down yeah. generationally and we have to understand what's happening in our bodies yeah. in yeah. order to do better. Yeah, yeah. Especially as we begin to talk about race, right? Because- mm-hmm. You know, one of the organizing pieces in the book is is the practices, right? I talk about the practices because in this society and in this structure where the white body is deemed to be the standard of humanness, not just not just like some some meaningless thing. There has been meaning infused with this idea that the white body is the standard of humanness and everything else is a deviation from humanness. Right. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that happens is and wrapped into that is the idea that cognition and and brains and your intellect is the ultimate form of intelligence. And one of the things I talk to people about is that there are so many more forms of intelligence that we cut off at the behest of cognition. And when we talk about race, because race has so much charge and it's so much unmetabolized charge to it, the moment you start talking about race, especially if you're talking about race across cultures, one of the things that happens is that people automatically land into protective strategies. They move, they start, the moment you start talking about it, in the white, in the white collective, many times, because the white body is the standard, white folks don't have a real good understanding of how to navigate race as a collective, right? Because they haven't had to. There's, you, you're the standard, so you're, your survival is not dependent upon you knowing the nuance of race or being able to discern things around race. And so that's why the, the practices are so important, right? Is beginning to slow down long enough so those things that are there charged, that have texture, that have weight to them, that have speed to them, can be discerned as opposed to kind of what I call fire hosing, which is what we do a lot in the society, is we say, okay, I want to drink. So we found that find the nearest fire hose and turn it on full, full blast <laughs> in order to get a drink. And we wonder why we're wet, but we're still thirsty. And so the idea is, is, to, is to make it smaller 
chunk so people get a chance to begin to condition and temper themselves so they can actually hold the charge of this 400-year-old thing that we have been unwilling to deal with. Right. And your point, particularly in the exercises, when you sort of paint scenes for people to imagine and to really feel into their bodies, Mm -hmm. is that these are entrenched somatic responses to fear or anxiety that we're not even conscious of and would be ashamed to admit, but that it's buried deep in our bodies that we would tense or move or all of those microaggressions that are so obvious to Black people in America that many of us aren't even aware that we're doing. It's just instinctual based on fallacy. Um, Yeah. Well, see... One of the things that happens with us is that, like I said earlier, when you genuflect to cognition, right, Mm. as the be all and end all, then those other parts of your intelligences like vibrations, like vibes, right, they don't get honed, like being able to deal with image and how images impact you, meaning making, behavior and urges, affect and feelings, sensations and sensei, those things don't get honed. They get crowded out and Mm -hmm. and marginalized, right? And so part of the practice is for white bodies to begin to work, not just individually. White bodies love doing individual shit, right? (laughs) And that's not going to get it. What has happened to, like what I always say is what, what has happened to black bodies and other bodies of culture, one of the things that happened is that the brutality that happened to us didn't happen to us individually. It happened Mm -hmm. communally. So to develop individual responses to a communal horror is inadequate. Niceness Mm -hmm. is inadequate. Doing individual things is inadequate to deal with that communal horror and that communal grief. White bodies also would, you know, as you know, because you've read the book, you know that I start talking about how many of the white bodies that are your listeners right now are going to be listening to this. Many of them come from other white bodies who were fleeing something. Mm-hmm. Right? That never got worked through. And it's and it, what it did was, was seed the ground over time that the thousand years of the Middle Ages seeded the ground for, for white bodies to actually accept the idea of whiteness. So by the time elite white bodies had done all of that brutalization in Portugal, in Spain, in France, in England, had committed all of the genocide uh, that they had done on poor white bodies, what elite white bodies did to black and indigenous bodies, they perfected on poor white bodies first. So right. then, so then, for a thousand years that was going on, and then that body came here, and so by the time elite white bodies, you know, said to poor white bodies, "Do you want to be white?" Poor white bodies was like, "Hell yeah!" You mean there's a chance that my children won't have to deal with this? Yeah, we'll take some of that, right? And mm-hmm. you're seeing, you're seeing the the actually the flowers of those seeds right now, right? I mean, that's what you're seeing. And anytime you have seventy million people that vote for putting babies in cages, that vote for groping women by the genitals, that vote for okaying white supremacists walking in the street. Anytime 70 million people vote for that, you know you're not dealing with just a personification of, of, of racism or white supremacy, which Donald Trump is, but you're, you're dealing with the ethos. You're dealing with a philosophy. Trump may leave office. Trumpism is here to stay. Right. 
Yeah. No, and I thought what you sort of traced in the footnotes, but also in the body of the book in terms of sort of the brutalism of the Middle Ages, what so many of us are, 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 what would have lived on in our DNA epigenetically or spiritually or however you want to look at it. You know, before we started, we were talking about Minnesota. My dad ended up in did his residency at the Mayo Clinic by way of South Africa, Jewish, you know, fleeing, fleeing Germany and Poland in the 30s. Right. So the same things, just many of us have arrived here, maybe by choice, but maybe not. And when you talk about sort of the first people who came and you talk about them as refugees fleeing Mm -hmm. bodily terror, the plague. It's interesting to watch when you think about it in the perspective of history, not to diminish what we're what we're experiencing right now, but it's sort of almost like a spiral. It's like a Mm -hmm. spiral shell of Mm -hmm. just like eensy bit better, right? With each generation. (laughs) I like how you said eensy. (laughs) Just an eensy, eensy bit. Yeah. But like as we metabolize it and work work it through our bodies. But I guess the whole point of your book is if we can bring consciousness, we're not metabolizing it. We're just passing it through each other's bodies, passing it, blowing it through each other's bodies. So one of the things, one of the things about your dad who comes from people who, you know, 6 million people who were exterminated out of the face of the earth, right? One of the things that happens is that trauma decontextualized in a person can look like personality. Trauma decontextualized in a family can look like family traits. A trauma decontextualized in a people can look like culture. Mm -hmm. So when there's a, when there's a significant amount of trauma like that and people get organized around the trauma, each successful generation and year decontextualizes it for the next generation. And what you picked up on in your daddy, you picked up on not just his instruction to you, but you picked up on what his body and what he recoiled from and what he leaned into Mm non-verbally, right? And so that's how we pick up on the trauma. And by the time it gets to us, we have this faded notions or this fainting notions of something is right or wrong, but we don't have a context for it. That's one of the ways it gets passed down epigenetically because the danger of it in us and in my in your dad's sperm and in your mom's eggs, the danger of it turns things on. It doesn't reorganize the gene. It turns things on in the gene that says you might be you might be dealing with these particular things. I may not be around to deal with it, but in your body and in your gut, you keep reacting as if some as if that thing is going on it's a pass through and so mm-hmm. so those things usually don't get worked with or worked around they get they get kind of standardized as personality standardized as family traits standardized as culture so then it makes it even more difficult to get at it because it because it's standardized suggesting that there's a rightness to it <laughs> but we just got organized around it and then it got passed through and does that manifest as sort of what you startle to or the sort of people that you respond to? The, the, the vibrations of it ends up showing up. And so one of the things I say when I'm working with people in my office around trauma or around anxiety or depression, I said, you're dep-, a lot of times I tell them, I said, your depression 
at its root started in what I call the five brutalities, right? Started mm -hmm. in these things that have been passed through, like colonialism, imperialism, enslavement, genocide, and land theft, right? And so what ends up happening is we think something is defectively wrong with us because we've been downloaded into by what happened historically, what happened intergenerationally, what happened in terms of persistent institutional brutality, and then our own personal traumas all come together and then we get overwhelmed. Some of us, this overwhelmed sense happens before we get here. Sometimes when I'm working with people, I'll ask them, when they'll say, well, this keeps going on and this keeps going on and I'm noticing this and I'm noticing that. One of the things that I ask people is, is this old or is this new? Mm. And many and most people know, <laughs> most people know, but they haven't had a way of articulating it, right? Mm. And so part of the practices in the book is really getting people to slow down enough to begin to deal with this this brutality that may actually not not be yours, but is a pass down and pass through. It's what I call a traumatic retention. You don't have a cognitive sense of it. You have an embodied or somatic sense of it, which means that, and we don't have a, a communal way of helping people work with that. So people have a tendency to think that there is a defect in them. Mm. Right. Or to not even maybe even be aware of how unsettled they feel. That's exactly right. Or exactly scared. Right. 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 Yeah. They, 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 and their sense of intelligence and the people that get screwed the most with this is people who have this intelligence that is so hyper honed around cognition. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're hyper honed around cognition, when when that doesn't quite work, like you keep asking the question, well, why is this and why is that and why? And then there's no answer for it or the answers don't assuage the sensation of it, now you, th now you think that the defect is in you as opposed, to, uh, as opposed to what got passed down, as opposed to what is continuously happening, right? right. Our, it's what I call HIPP, H-I-P-P, -P, historical, intergenerational, persistent institutional, and our own personal traumas all combine together to give us a sense of overwhelm. When we have that sense of overwhelm, if it's persistent and consistent, what we'll do is find override strategies to get around it. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. CarbonX is an environmental company that aims to empower people to make a positive impact on the planet. They've created a simple platform to help you make up for your carbon emissions by supporting climate-friendly projects. You can earn shareable badges based on how long you've been offsetting, and your subscription will go towards supporting new initiatives and carbon offsetting projects that have been independently verified to have removed CO2 from the atmosphere. You can choose a project that is meaningful to you, such as planting trees in deforested regions of the Amazon and investing in energy efficient and renewable resources around the world. For the Goop podcast team, CarbonX wanted to cover our team's carbon footprint. They donated a subscription for us to support an energy-efficient cook stoves program in Uganda. To learn more about CarbonX, head to their website at carbonx.com. That's carbon with a K-X.com or download the CarbonX app. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. 
And so I know that the work, in, and I love your your description of clean pain versus dirty pain and sort of the, the hard work, but es- essential work of clean pain. And then also this idea of settling sort of the consciousness that comes and then the settling of bodies. Mm-hmm. Because I know you also work a lot with police who mm-hmm. are chronically stressed mm-hmm. and obviously really jacked up, right? <laughs> Unsettled bodies. And That's then right. not no not good ways of discharging the stress that they feel right. or even, you know, they're all alert all the time. So that feels like essential work, like it needs yeah. to be a national priority yeah. to ensure safer outcomes for everyone. Yeah. But so where... Can, let's start with clean pain and dirty pain. Can you sort of dis- yeah, explain yeah, the difference? Yeah. So, so I don't, I, I don't say clean versus. I say clean and. And the reason okay. is, is that we all know this, this kind of sensation of clean and dirty, right? Clean pain is a clean pain and clean discomfort. Is that is that pain and discomfort that happens when you know you should be making a choice about something. Your gut your body, you've been able to discern that you should make a a choice about something, but it's going to be painful. And you make that choice anyway. Anybody that's ever dated somebody that you know your ass shouldn't be dating knows clean and dirty (laughs) pain, right? (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) We all know what I'm talking about, right? (laughs) That place, that place where you just like, you know, he or she is just so damn hot and cute, but they are horrible for me, right? <laughs> right? <laughs> and, and I stay with them. That's dirty pain, right? That's dirty. You know it. There's something in your body that says, this right here is dirty, but I can't help myself, right? Mm-hmm. Clean pain is being faced with that same choice and saying, I'm done. I can't do it. This is, and this hurts too. I'm gonna be in my room, I'm gonna be crying, listening to Spandau Ballet or whatever it is. (laughs) (laughs) With a a red light on, right? And I'm gonna be there eating my popcorn and and, and Ben and Jerry's, but it's cleaner. It has more capacity, right? And what I say is that in that clean, in that clean choice, in those clean choices that we make, there is a demand, there is an amount of discernment that you develop that you don't develop when you are choosing dirty. Mm-hmm. Right? And and in this country has chosen dirty pain over and over and over again as it relates to race. Right? The dirty is standardized. Right? right. And so, and so there is a, this is one of the reasons that this is why I was prompted to write the book. Before I wrote the book, I had done two years over in Afghanistan and my own trauma and my own stuff ended up coming together with the cultural trauma and the historical trauma. And that's how the book came about. It was, was putting some things together that I hadn't put together around my grandmother and her hands and picking cotton and all of that different type of stuff and things that I didn't really want to go through but as i went through it it created such a discernment for me regarding what was actually happening to my people what was actually happening to people how people get to these places of of accepting the dirty as standard 
What are the things that make white body supremacy so inviting for white bodies, right? What are those things? And then beginning to write on it really helped me discern the pieces from one another, slow it down so I could begin to work with it. And now that I've, begin, I've, I've been doing it for a while, working with bodies around this area is so crystal clear to me around how really seductive dirty is. Yeah. Dirty pain and dirty discomfort is very seductive. There's there's something, it's one of the reasons why I don't say white privilege anymore. I say white advantage. And what mm. I mean by that is that there is in a society or in a structure that's predicated on the white body being the standard of humanness, the race question in this country is actually not a race question. The race question in this country is actually a species question. It always has been a species question that remember when the term race was first used to identify difference in speciesness, right? A, a race of dog, a race of cat, a race of bird. That was speciesness. That same thing was then used and applied to humans, right? And so the idea of race is actually a species. And the underlying question in this country is Resma, are indigenous bodies and black bodies, are they human or are they, or is Resma a monkey, right? That's why you see that caricature show up all the time, right? Is that it has to do with speciesness, right? And the answer for this country in terms of the, the question, is Resma a monkey? Is Resma not human? The answer is no, he is not human. He is primate. And everything mm -hmm. else got organized around it. And so just what you're experiencing right now, what you're, when I'm saying this, like what you're experiencing right now, as I'm saying this in your body, that's where people have to start right there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's true. The dirty pain, it offers this bypass, right? right. And yes, exactly the, right. the white body supremacy view is sort of aren't can't we just skip like let's mm -hmm. just like we're all it's all good you know like let's just start over but yeah. when you when you talk about and write about your grandmother her hands her feet her own trauma retentions and our collective trauma retentions like there's yeah. no the work has to be done to do it means that you're complicit in the maintenance of the structure that, that that's what it means that's 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 why when people declare to me well i'm not racist and i'm not this i'm like how do you get to self-declare how do you just, yeah. you know what I mean? How do you, how does that happen that you believe that self-declaration is the same thing as uprooting white body supremacy, right? Yeah. How, how, how do you do that? You can't, you can't, you right. can't do that. You can do it, but it's performative. Totally. Yeah. Right. Totally performative. And we so much like to sort of use that relational advantage or relational experience to, to, yeah. to perform that and sort yeah. of be, look at yeah. my, you know, black yeah. boyfriend yeah. or my, yeah. my, my black, black best kids. friend. Yeah. And yeah. Oh, you know, you know, my, my dad, my dad, that's my white voice. My dad <laughs> marched with Martin Luther King. Or, yeah. you know, we were in the civil rights movement or, you know, my dad was a Jewish Jewish man and he worked with this. And I'm, and I'm sitting there like, if you didn't tell me that, how would I know that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, when people individually say things like that to me, the first thing that pops into my head is who are your people? Right. Who are the people that are that you're developing a living, embodied, anti-racist culture with? Who are those people that are holding you and going to hold you accountable? 
Who are the other white bodies that are doing that? If you just sit up and tell me that and declare that you're an ally, how would I know that other than the verbal words coming? How would I vibe it if, we've, if you haven't done any work to get to the depths of this with other white bodies, right? How right. would I know that, right? Yeah. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the U.S. To explore their rug collections, head to NordicKnots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And it's so interesting what you were saying at the beginning about it not being necess- not being an individual pursuit, but it has to be collective. And I loved this idea that you write about, which is... And I, I'm certainly not alone in feeling like, oh, I'm a, I'm just a white woman, right? Like my, we had, my son has all the heritage months. And at one point it was like, write down your heritage. And I'm like, I don't even, what, what is our heritage? I have no idea. And so you sort of talked about how helpful it would be if we could white people, black people. I mean, you hear it from the Latinx, they're like, we're not a block. Like, yeah, right. stop that's treating right. us like a block. That's exactly right. Exactly. And so, getting sort of like the Irish Americans, mm-hmm. German Americans, all of these cultural identities that we've sort of taken off and abandoned, mm-hmm. and sort of starting to try to resurrect that yeah. and become a little bit more specific right. about who we are. Right. I love that idea because I feel lost too culturally. Like I don't I don't know what I am. That's, you know? that's right. That's right. That's <laughs> but, but see that's what you gave up in order to be white. That's yeah. what your people gave up in order to and there is a bypass. There is a very seductive bypass right now that white bodies I see doing that is different than what I said in the book. Right. White bodies think that what I said in the book was to go back and reclaim your Irish heritage or go back and claim your Russian heritage or go back and claim some type of ethnic heritage. What I'm talking about is not I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm not talking about nationality. I'm not talking about identity. I'm talking about that we are in a structure that was predicated on pigmentation being a shorthand to determine who was human and who was not. Deal with that piece first. Deal with Mm. the brutality of that first, right? And then get with other white bodies and do this work in a somatic way so that what needs to emerge as a new culture can emerge from that, not because of strategy, not because of, of fixing something, but because you do the somatic work that allows that thing to emerge. You, you see what I mean? So it's not about you 
developing, like, like, like you said, I don't really know who I am. And there's a frozen, this is one of the things when I'm working with body, white bodies that I talk about is that there is a frozenness, a constriction in the idea of accepting the idea of whiteness that was mm. freely gave up, right? And part of the unthawing for white bodies is really beginning to deal with the idea of uh, that, that you gave up something and that giving up of something actually thwarted your humanity. There's, so so think, let, let me give you an example, okay? Without regard to identity, imagine this, imagine this for a moment. Imagine being a little white boy and your sister is sitting in a living room with you. And the front door opens up and your dad walks in and you're happy to see him. And your mom walks in and you're happy to see her. And your dad looks at you and he says, you two get your coach, we're going to a park. And you get your coach, you're happy, you're with your mom and your dad, and you get in the, in the station wagon or the minivan or whatever it is, and you're driving, and you're happy. You pull up to the park, and your dad has to drive around for a little bit of time before he even can park because there's so many people there. And you're wondering, why are so many people here? And then all of a sudden, you get out, and you see your best friend playing on the playground, and you run over to him. And not only is it your best friend, but it's every, all of the kids in the neighborhood and their parents are there and everybody's having a good picnic and everybody's doing this thing and you're just happy. But all of a sudden, as you're up on one of the playground pieces, you notice there's a smell of barbecue and you're like, wow, this is so beautiful that there's a smell of barbecue and it, but it, it, it smells a little off, but it's barbecue and I'm with my friends and I'm with my dad and this whole thing is going really well. And all of a sudden, you know, you look up and your dad says, come here, boy. And you go, yeah, dad. And you come down the slide and your dad grabs your hand and you're walking and he's taking you to something. And as he's taking you through this thing, you're walking through all of these crowds of that's Mr. Johnson over there who owns the butcher. That's Mr. Taylor, who's the, who is the chief of police. That's the judge. That's the milkman and all of these good white men are all around you and you get and the, and the smell of barbecue is getting even is getting even stronger and stronger and all of a sudden you come to this crowd and the crowd opens up and you get to this smell of barbecue and what you notice is that there's two bodies there, two black bodies that have been lynched in the Duluth lynching. Mm. You're looking and the smell is horrible, but everybody's happy. Mm. It's sanctioned. You want to turn away, but everybody's happy and is sanctioned. You want to run, but everybody's happy and is sanctioned. You want to scream, but everybody's happy and is sanctioned. What just got passed down to your children, children's, 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 as standard, as frozenness, as stuckness, as standard. Mm. that's what we're doing. Not dealing with a cognitive exercise. Yet. Oh, God. So, and I know you write about this, you know, white people, find your own elders, find your own therapists. Emerge, find... emerge them, cultivate them, not just find them, but cultivate them. Most white elders, white elder, white elders there, but in the area of developing a living embodied anti-racist culture, they don't exist. Yeah, they're going to be, <laughs> they're going to have to be grown and cultivated. 
won't that take longer than we have? Nine, nine generations. I believe it's going to take nine generations before white people even know what the fuck is going on with race. Oh, that is so. But start now. So your children's children's children have something to lean into in your nervous system, your babies, your babies. If you don't start doing your work now, your babies won't have the resonance to be able to pick up on how to do it. That's Mm. why you have to start now. Okay. And that's, you know, you talk about sort of, obviously, there are some people to help us with this, the original work, mm-hmm. you know, I know you do a lot with Robin, mm-hmm. D'Angelo, yeah. Peggy McIntosh, Jim yeah. Wallace, yeah. Tim yeah. Wise. And then in the in the construct of that, what you just led us through the sort of somatic experiencing of some of well, that's, events. Well, that's what I call a some what I just did with you is what I call a somatic elicitation. Right. A somatic elicitation. Yeah, yeah, because because when I was going through that with you, right, good, good breath, good breath. What I was doing with you was walking walking you through something that I knew was going to solicit something somatically. And if I was going to take you through the whole thing, we would if we, if we did if we did one of my workshops and we were in there for eight hours, there would be things that I would be doing to help you begin to discern what actually was showing up right now. Like some people, when they go through that, they dissociate. They're gone. Mm-hmm. They're not even in the room. Right. Some people like go into emotionality. Well, what, what we do is slow it down so you can begin to get practices with that and begin to discern what's actually going on, discern what the constriction is, discern what the weight is, what the texture is, what the charge is. Because otherwise, what the, one of the things I say is respect the protect. You have protective mechanisms in you that when something gets too overwhelming, you go to those protective pieces, right? And so we have to slow it down and do it in little chunks so you can begin so the body doesn't immediately go to shutting down, but actually allows you to go through the process and the texture of it. So you can actually just like, you know, just like if you were going to become a better seamstress or a better basketball player, better whatever, you have to practice. This is the same thing. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Are you hopeful? Okay, so we have a nine, we have nine generation nine generations of work to do. Are you hopeful that just even increased awareness around any of this will at least bring the temperature down like between cops and black bodies or no, no, you think we're just stuck here. And and, and I, I, you know, that question around hope, I I, I place my hope in the work that people do. I don't place Mm. my hope in some kind of crystal ball idea. Right. 
so let, let me let me ask you a question. So do you remember after Brother George Floyd got murdered? Do you remember all of the when you looked on your Instagram or your Facebook timeline, you saw all of these pictures of Breonna Taylor, all of these pictures of Floyd, you know, say their names, you know, you see something, say something. We have to, you know, all of these messages, right? Remember all of that stuff? Of course. Yeah. Now, now look at people's timeline. You see all you, you is we, we returned back to the pictures of fucking cats and dogs and what people are eating. We're back there again. That's what I mean. You, we have yeah. to develop a container, a culture. So the, so the cooking and things that need to emerge can emerge. Otherwise it's performative. Otherwise white people have not developed a cultural container by which things can cook in. What happens is they get shocked and get spurned into action, but there's no there there. There is nothing to sustain it. So what happens after the heat leaves, you go back to cat videos. Mm -hmm. And after we get our cookies, and after, you know? Yeah, exactly right. Exactly yeah. right. Exactly right. Totally. So we have to start cultivating our elders now. That's right, right now. Can you take us through sort of some of the ways, because I think the settling of bodies that you write about is so beautiful, but mm -hmm. the ways that you incur, like the anchors, the five yeah. anchors. Yeah. 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 Well, one and of creating the, the, the symmetry and, and groups. So as probably people can tell, as people can tell by listening to me, when it comes to doing this type of work, I do not have white bodies and bodies of culture in the same room or group when I'm doing this type of work especially when we start when we're doing some of the practices. So it is a relatively new occurrence, right, that the Black body has some relative stewardship or dominion over itself. Mm -hmm. The things that I've just said over the, over the time that we've been together, the things that I've just said, I'm somewhat sure that when I get out of my office and walk out on my porch, that there's probably not going to be a lynch party waiting for me outside of my house. That's relatively new. Mm. For most of our history, the white body has had full and unfettered access to my body. And I mean, every orifice, every idea, every philosophy, every part of my body. Remember, rape in this country was sanctioned. It was legal to rape my grandmother's mother's mothers and my great. Do you understand what I mean? It was legal to rape my father. Because remember, my father's father's right. Because remember, rape is a is about power. Yeah. Right. So when it comes to doing this this work, I really say that there's so much charge that even if you're nice, if we, the way that our bodies have been configured. So because our bodies have been, the white body has had so much access to the black body and the indigenous body. One of the things that happens is that the moment that I show any type of stewardship or dominion to you, you, the white body has an experience that I'm taking something from it. Hmm. Right. And so and so what ends up happening is, is that the white body ends up sitting as a collective expecting my deference because it's had it for so long. Right. And when it doesn't have deference, the white body begins to do things to try and get that deference back. Right. So, for instance, let me give you an example. So all I have to do to get the collective white body to lose its mind, all I have to do 
is kneel on a football field on the sidelines, <laughs> quiet. That's all I got. That's all I have to do is show any amount of stewardship over my own sense of self, over my own body. Any of that, the white body, because it has not developed a living embodied anti-racist practice and culture, sees that as a threat. Mm-hmm. Right? So yeah. I have people doing this work separately because all of that has got to be worked through among white bodies and not blown through my body where the deference is or where, where the white body believes the deference should be. Right. And then black bodies and bodies of culture have to work with what we've ingested in terms of who we in terms of how fraudulence and imposter syndrome is woven into the structure. Because if the white body is is deemed structurally the standard and philosophically the standard of humanness, then everything else is a deviance from that. And anti-blackness is woven into that. So my fraudulence. Right. Because I'm not in a white body right? My fraudulence shows up as not being good enough or not seeming like something is wrong with me, or I don't quite measure up to whiteness or the white body because I'm not in a white body. I mean, deviance from the standard of humanness. And so mm. all of that plays out. You can't do that, all of that different type of work with those bodies together in a room, right? right? So I have those bodies split up and I do, I do work with what shows up and I have people that I've trained to help me work and hold those bodies as I'm doing that work. And some of it is settling, some of it is deepening resource and helping people develop the uh, resource, but it is not a, a kumbaya type of, can we all just get along and all that, 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 <laughs> that ain't how, that, because this, this stuff is vicious. This stuff is violent. This stuff is brutal. Right. And to create something that's just about centering white comfort keeps us stuck. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is vicious and, and brutal. And mm-hmm. and exactly that's exactly what keeps us from, you know, consistently turning away from it. Like you that's talk right. about the disassociation, et cetera. Like yep. it's really yeah. ugly. It's ugly. And it is really ugly. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. to, you know, and it is completely dissonant to look mm. at that and then hold yourself as a good person. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Th- and it's exactly why, exactly why people have to do it. You have to get to your suffering's edge with this in order for critical mass to 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 come into play and for real or reorganization to take place and re- real reformation to take place, uh, yeah. real reclamation to take place. That happens at the sufferings there, it's not at the place where we're comfortable and things are going really well. That's usually not how you, how you transform. You transform in those things that you don't do well and you keep coming right. back to it, yeah. And when you think about those 70 million people, and I might, this might be mm-hmm. a misreading of your mm-hmm. book, but you seem to be arguing, like, forget about that. Like, we're not gonna change culture at that level Yes, like it's not a question of superheroes and how many are black and how many are white and and all of that where I think we tend mm-hmm. socially to get fixated, right? That's Again right. in this performance. That's right. It is deeply it's the the personal work, right? Yeah. So, yeah. it yeah. nothing's going to happen until and do you see it as sort of Emergent. obviously an emergence? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, but it but it emerges because you're tilling the soil 
all along the way, right? You're not mm-hmm. saying, oh, I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm doing some sage and I'm eating my kale with my blonde dreadlocks. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, and then some shit emerges. That's not, that's not how it happens. It happens because you're doing your work and you're doing your work with other bodies. That's how it happens. Okay. So for those who want to go do this work with other bodies, is there anyone who's be, can we do this work with you or is that Black Pied well, Piper? Well, yeah, yeah, I'm not Black Piper. <laughs> I'm not your fucking Black Guru. Don't call me asking me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so if you go to resma.com, there is there will be some stuff on there. If you go to Education for Racial Equity, you're partnering yeah. with them, and then Kareem Bell from Rerooted, I'm doing some work with her. And then in actually in... February and March, we're going to be, we, we just completed some of our group work and all of that stuff. And so we're going to be starting up again in February or March and uh, taking people through like a nine month process. We're going to be helping people uh, begin to work with it. And so I would encourage you also go to my Instagram because that's where I lower, do a lot of stuff. So Resma Minicam, if you go there and then you can follow me. And then if you, there's a link in my Instagram, you find out when all of the workshops and stuff are happening and stuff like that. And then okay. just be on the lookout. I got a lot of stuff coming up. My work, writing my next book, which is called Our Grandchildren's Souls. When I wrote My Grandmother's Hands, I didn't know all of the holes that were in the way that I was kind of presenting and, and, and right. Cause you don't know the holes until you, until you, until they reveal themselves. If you never write the book, then you can't never get to that stage. And so there were a lot of things that I'm, I'm going back through that I've learned over the last three or four years. And I go, ah, okay, let me, let me, let me talk about legacy here. Let me talk about what we leave our kids. Let me talk about some of these pieces. Like, like one, one big one is that one of the things that I did in the book that I need to make a correction on is that I equated a vocation with a body. So I equate, so I called it blue bodies, right? As, as as there's no blue bodies, right? There are only there's blue fucking shirts, there's blue uniforms, there's but no blue bodies. And what I did was was give was inadvertently give people an out of thinking about this idea of race by 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 saying blue bodies. And so I'm making that correction. So that's that the next book is really about almost something a book that I feel like I'm leaving my grandchildren's children's children around what is actually going on and, and, and how to work with it. Amazing. I can't wait. Yeah. Hopefully we can talk again. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Resma Menachem. For more from Resma, please check out his book, My Grandmother's Hands, Racialized Trauma and the Pathway to Mending Our Hearts and Bodies. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.